Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, the scandal at Meyerling. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, where today we are not reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, but instead we are talking about a ballet, namely The Scandal at Myling by Scottish Ballet. Uh, we'll be learning about the real history behind it, discussing Crown Prince Rudolf, uh, who was heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne in the latter half of the 19th century, uh, and his death in a suicide pact with his mistress Mary Vetsera at the Myling Hunting Lodge in 1889. Uh, we'll be speaking to the principal dancer from the ballet and an historian to learn more about the ballet and the history. Yeah. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can join the Privy Council by supporting us on www.patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. And if you want to get in touch with us, you'll find us on Twitter and Instagram where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's get on with the interview. Uh, so, Lucy and Evan, first of all, uh, welcome to Rex Factor. Uh, thanks for having us. Uh, could you both please just uh, introduce yourselves to listeners in terms of who you are, what you do, etc. Uh, my name is Evan Loudon. I'm a principal dancer with Scottish Ballet, and I'll be playing the role of Rudolf in our interpretation of Myling. Yeah, I'll go then. Um, the cat has come to distract me. Hello, um, my name is Lucy. Um, I'm, I'm I'm from England, uh, um, but I live in Austria right now in Vienna, which is perfect for my research because I'm a historian dealing. Hi, Kat. Uh, dealing with the uh, 19th century Habsburg family, um, specifically looking at the events of, of Myling and, and the Vetscherer family as well. Um, so, Evan, if we could start with you, could you uh, give us a summary of uh, what the ballet is about, what the story is? Yes. So, um, Scottish Ballet's version is called The Scandal at Myling, and it uh, follows Crown Prince Rudolf, and it starts off with his um, wedding day to Princess Stephanie. And it just kind of shows her relationships that he has with the woman in his life and how that's affected him mentally and how he treats women. And it goes right up to um, Myling where he eventually kills himself. So it shows the whole journey about his mental illness and relationships that he has. And it's really interesting. It's a really, it's really full on. Mm-hmm. but it's um it's a great role to tackle and you're saying uh the scottish ballet version because there this isn't there is a it's sort of based on a ballet but it's not the same as the original one yeah so it's originally created by um 
Kenneth Macmillan on the Royal Ballet down in London at the Opera House in 1978. And um, it was just called Miling. And it's the same ballet that we're doing our version up in Scotland. So it's just reimagined and redesigned. And um, obviously our, we have 40 dancers in our company, whereas in, mm-hmm. down in London, there's a lot, a lot more dancers. Mm-hmm. So we're um, yeah, interpreting it our way, but the story is the same and we're still doing the same choreography, just just a Scottish's version. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to apologise for this question because I feel like this is a question that basically any new show in 2022 is going to be asked all yeah. year. But uh, the Big C question, how is the, well, it's Big C and then I'm going to say pandemic, how, how has COVID <laughs> uh, affected uh, the production of the show and like you generally in terms of what you have or haven't been able to do? Well, we were meant to premiere it a few years ago, but then obviously the pandemic happened. Um, but I think we're all at a stage now where we're getting used to COVID and how to live with it and mm. how we can function properly as much as we can. You know, we're still wearing masks in the studio if people feel uncomfortable. So, you know, that's a bit of a struggle to get through sometimes, but we're, we're making a way around it, but safely. And um, yeah, I, I think, think it's just one of those things that you have to learn how to live with now. Mm. Yeah. But to dance in a mask, did you, what you say in rehearsals, you, you wore masks? Yeah, up until a few weeks ago, we had to wear masks for um, a morning classes to warm up. And if we had a big group rehearsal, we would all have to wear masks while we're dancing. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't great, <laughs> as you can yeah. probably imagine. Really hard to breathe. Yeah. It, we've actually been doing it since um, the start of the pandemic. So it was actually weird taking the masks off. <laughs> you must have felt like like weight training with um, straps yeah. to your legs or something. You must have felt I actually like got Superman. quite lightheaded from the amount of mm-hmm. oxygen that was coming into my body. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> this is different. <laughs> um, no, but yeah, we kind of got used to wearing the masks. It's it's great not to, especially with something like miling. It's um not just physically demanding; it's emotionally demanding, mm. and you have to portray so much through your body and of the acting. So it just adds that element onto it, and it actually makes it easier mm. showing the face. Obviously, um, Graham, you might <laughs> yes. well cover this, but uh, full disclosure: I haven't seen it. It's not open yet, is it? You said something about going up to see it. <laughs> and I don't know the story. So who, what's going on? Well, that's what I was just going to come to, uh, to Lucy to maybe give us a bit of the context, actually, of who Crown Prince Rudolf is mm. uh, and what the background and historical context for his life is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The cats have chosen the perfect moment to fight um, <laughs> right next to me. <laughs> um, yeah, so Crown Prince Rudolf, he was the the only son of Emperor Franz Josef and Empress Elizabeth of Austria. So this long-awaited son, they'd already had um, two daughters before him. Um, and uh, yeah, so he was their, their only son, the heir to the throne. There were so many great hopes kind of pinned upon him. And right from the moment he was born, he was basically expected to be a soldier. He was raised to be a soldier, even, you know, the honors that he was given. Um, but, you know, as a baby, they were honors that would be given to to a grown man in the military. And his um, education was not put in the hands of his mother. It was put in the hands of his maternal grandmother. This is all to do with this very strict um, Spanish court ceremonial uh, at the Habsburg court that meant that the mother would not, you know, have a role in this. Um, So his grandmother, Sophie, she put him uh, in the hands of of a general um, 
uh, Grand Record. I never know how to pronounce his name. I'm presuming it's like that. <laughs> and he basically put this child through the most terrible things, you know, locking him into what is a nature reserve here in Vienna and saying that wild boars were going to come and eat him, oh, waking God. him up in the middle of the night with gunshots, making him walk in, in the snow in, the, in you know, the early hours of the morning. I mean, really child abuse that he was mm. going through. And when his mother, Elizabeth, found out about this, she gave her husband the emperor an ultimatum. Either you let me take over the education of my children, or I leave you and the Vienna court forever. And of course, he, did, he the emperor did not want to lose his wife. He also didn't want to lose the empress. This would look very bad for everyone. Um, so he agreed to this and she takes over his education. She puts a more liberal person in place. Um, because there's also the political difference between the emperor and the empress. He was more conservative, she was a lot more liberal. Um, so it was, you know, a, a nicer start for the crown prince. Um, he becomes very interested in, in the natural sciences to the point that when he's an adult, he's not allowed to study at the university, but he gets given an honorary doctorate for his work. He makes ethnographical studies. Um, he, yeah, he's, he's writing books. He becomes very political, but he's not actually allowed a political role. Um, his father basically blocks him from any kind of political role. So what he does is he starts publishing anonymous um, newspaper articles, not always criticizing his father, but sometimes that would come into play. Um, and oh, one, one thing that I did forget is he also gets introduced basically to women with his new tutor, um, you know, how to be a man, masculine, whatever this means, you know. Um, but these expectations at the time that a crown prince would take lovers, this, this was totally fine. This was acceptable in a way that it wasn't for women. Um, so, you know, he becomes a bit of a ladies' man. He writes a will very at a very early age where he sends one last kiss to the, the women of Vienna who he's loved so much. Um, and, yeah, so, and he's very popular with the women as well. There, there are contemporaries who say that he wasn't actually physically attractive, and yet he had this aura that made you want to be around him. He had the, this smile and this look in his eyes. Um, so I guess this links into to this ballet where, he, you know, you see his relationships with all of these different women in his life and, and the impacts that this has on him. Mm. And it's interesting, like with um, in Rex Factor, when we review sort of where you have kind of a straight laced monarch uh, that puts lots of pressure on their son that you almost always end up with oh, yeah. the kind of complete opposite. So like we have George Georges. III and then George the Fourth, the Prince Regent. So is that kind of the dynamic that we've got going here, that a very introvert, solid conservative emperor, and that ends up with the complete opposite of what he wants? Yeah, definitely. And it's also that um, Rudolf was very sensitive. He, he was meant to be very much like his mother, Elizabeth, who was known to you know, have mood swings, be very introverted and shy. And it seems he inherited a lot of this stuff from her. So there's, there's that as well. He seems a lot more emotional, whereas Franz Josef is very, you know, straight, I do my duty, and, and that's that. Um, so you've got that side of things. And yeah, it also backfires um, when um, he has this, Rudolf gets this more liberal education because then he becomes, you know, very anti-clerical, whereas Franz Josef is, you know, very for the church. Rudolf also is basically an atheist. Um, and he has this, Rudolf has this weird tension in that he, starts to become a bit against the monarchy and against aristocracy. And yet he is so obsessed with his own, you know, status that I'm the crown prince and I deserve to be treated like the crown prince. So there's a bit of confusion going on there as well. Uh, so Evan, you were saying um, that it was quite a sort of 
challenging role in terms of the dancing. And I was reading, I got to see the programme, and it was saying that it was actually, at least when the original uh, version came out, it was quite unusual in Britain to have a male dancer as the principal character in the ballet. Is that still the case now? Uh, Not so much anymore. Um, I think just back in the late 1970s, you know, there were the big ballets like The Sleeping Beauty and Swan Lake, which is um, Mm. the principal characters, the main characters, the girl. Mm. But I think it was the first time that there was so much male dancing and so like featured on a male principal dancer, which, yeah, I think was kind of like the first big role. And even today, playing Rudolph and Miling is known as, oh, wow, that's like a challenging role. Mm. Right. It's a one to tick off the bucket list as well. You know, I think it's one of them. It's a Hamlet or something. Yeah, yeah. It's like something male dancers want to do, which, yeah, it, it's still very iconic. Mm. Wow. Well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel very privileged to play the role. Yeah. You know, you see so many great ballet dancers that played it before. And um, we had Leanne Benjamin and Edward Watson from the Royal Ballet who have done the roles multiple times. They came up to coach us the past two weeks hearing their information and what they passed down and what they got from their coaches who did the roles before them. You know, it's, it's kind of like a heritage ballet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fun. Which is great. And yeah, it's also amazing that it's a true story, not like Mm. Swan Lake or The Sleeping Beauty. You know, it's Mm. historical and factual. So I loved reading about the history of it. And it's great that he's an actual person. So Mm. I would watch interviews with, historians before he would speak about I'm like oh okay that's like interesting so that would make me think of a certain part of her differently or a certain solo or something which um yeah. I find really interesting that's what uh, that's actually that's literally what I was just about to ask actually in terms oh, of, <laughs> oh no it's great no it moved in perfectly because I was thinking like you said it was a challenging role in terms of the dancing but also obviously um the character and the events are quite full-on so I was wondering yeah. how much um of the kind of real history you sort of took on board and playing the character and what you made of Rudolph as a character? Yeah, I try and take on as much history as I can into the role. Um, and we're still in the rehearsal process. So I'm still testing things out. And, you know, I'll maybe go into a part of the one day with a different intention than I do the other because I've heard different interviews mm. um, with the relationship with the girl I'm about to dance with. And because we've, um, I guess we've sort of heard different aspects of Rudolph and Lucy there in terms of like yeah. that childhood and how difficult that was, but also the fact that he becomes quite a extrovert. Yeah, I actually didn't know some of that stuff, so that was really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Cool. Um, so Lucy, from it sort of it sort of almost sounded from what you were saying at the start that it kind of it started bad and then actually it all gets nice and cheery once he gets a more liberal education, but actually. That uh, those early years have quite an impact on his mental health, don't they? Absolutely. I think 100%. If you're experiencing something like that at any time in your life, it's going to have a huge impact on you. But I, I imagine as a child as well. And, you know, we also have to remember that parenting back then was, was an aristocratic parenting was different to how we understand parenting and family relationships today. Um, so we have this difficult tension of can we really put our modern kind of understandings back on this? Um, but still, you know, for a child to be basically separated from his mother, I mean, his his mother figure really became his grandmother, but also um, his nurse who was raising him. 
Um, and, and his mother was also often very absent physically in that she would travel around to other places. And so he would only have contact with her through letters. Um, we, there are some in the archives you can see. She writes to him very nicely, but it seems there was always this tension between them. And yeah, I think this childhood experience really had an impact for the rest of his life. Mm. God, can't you? Yeah, it has to, doesn't it? That's just awful, mm. some of those things. Yeah. So how does this sort of manifest itself in terms of his um, mental health issues as he grows older? Yeah, well, we see uh, that the, the more evidence kind of comes from, you know, the years leading up to Myerling. We see, see his wife, uh, Stephanie, she writes in her memoirs that he starts to just change very quickly, actually, in that he, he seems to be almost manic. He's always doing something. He has to be doing something, uh, drinking a lot of alcohol. Um, it just always like he always, yeah, like I said, he, he's manic. He has to be doing something at all times. He, she mentions this state of mental kind of uh, disillusion that's, that's happening, I think, starting around 1887, so about two years before Myerling. Um, it's difficult to see in his own letters, of course, other people, because you might not necessarily talk about this in, in your correspondence, but those around him seem to notice it. Um, and his sister as well, his little sister, Maria Valerie, says that he, she thinks he had some kind of depression. Um, but it's difficult to know in that also understandings of mental health back then were very different. Mm. We also had different mm. concepts of, of depression. It might be known as melancholia, for example. Um, but yes, we, we see this kind of this, this need to always be doing something, a, a real restlessness to the point that his wife actually starts to worry about him. They, you know, they didn't have a good relationship, but she was so worried about him that she went to the emperor and said, you know, you need to do something with your son. And he basically just dismisses her and says, oh, you just need to spend more time with him and everything will be okay. Mm. Um, and he, we know how it ends. He, he, he kills himself. Mm. So this, it's, it's really tragic. I'm guessing that even from looking at this sort of compared to the 1970s, there's much more of a focus and understanding on see, mental health issues now, and particularly obviously the last couple of years um, mm -hmm. with COVID. So is that in terms of the uh, ballet, and is that something there's been a particular focus on in terms of his mental health and portrayal? Yeah, yeah no, exactly, because it's quite a sensitive subject to portray, mm. especially um, with audiences coming to watch. So we've actually been really lucky to have intermediate coaches and fighting coaches called RC Annie, who would come into the studio and um, kind of guide us through scenes. Um, and I've been working with him a lot because he has a lot of substance abuse and um, there's a lot of gun work mm. in the ballet. Um, it's like a, quite a featured thing to show because it, in the, it's like mime and everything. Mm. So it's um, it was great working with him because he, I've learned a lot of stuff like he can't point the gun in certain directions because it might trigger people mm. or um, how you would act out a scene where you are under substance abuse. Mm. Um, so it is, yeah, it's a lot of work has gone into it to make sure it's um, comfortable for the dancers, but also for the audience watching. Mm. What about um, the, uh, the wardrobe for it? Cause I reckon yeah, I mean, that is spot on nutcracker stuff, isn't it? You've got big double-breasted things and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, um, we have new designs for Scottish Ballet. So mm. we've only seen bits and pieces of it because it's still all coming together. But it is 
of the, yeah, the costumes yeah. are absolutely like incredible, but it's very um historically accurate as well, which actually also is a bit of a challenge to dance with. Because, you know, I'm um, usually uh, used to dancing with girls in tutus, but they have these big corsets and <laughs> mm. these big dresses, so you have no idea where they are. Yeah. So is that right, Lucy? That 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 this chap would have been was it all? I mean, they're incredibly military, the Austro-Hungarians, but would have been sort of military garb the whole time. It depends on the person. And so Franz Josef, uh, Rudolf's dad, people kind of took the mick out of him because he was always wearing military uniforms. It wasn't necessarily the norm. Mm. Um, and so it's it's always a bit of a shock when you see pictures of Franz Josef in normal clothes. It looks very, very weird. Whereas Rudolf, there are a lot of pictures of him in military uniforms, but there's also a lot of pictures of him in, in more normal clothes. Um, but I'm not so much a fashion historian, so I can't give uh, a, a, a direct yeah. answer on that one. But I think the point with Franz Josef and uh, that, that people were making fun of him for his military clothes is probably giving us a clue. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. I just thought some people do it all the time, don't they? You can't ever imagine... Uh... Saddam Hussein in a pair of M&S slacks or, you know, he'd definitely be, he's always got the beret on. So I don't know why that's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've, um, you mentioned a little bit, Lucy, the, um, his wife and uh, the relationship there um, and the fact that he's a bit of a ladies man. Indeed, although Evan, obviously you're the principal dancer, but actually a lot of the other main characters in the ballet um, and his life are women. So uh, could you take us through some of the other sort of main characters that are in the ballet? Sure. So there's obviously Princess Stephanie, um, Mary Vetsfra. I'm, I apologize for not saying her last name correctly. I'm sure Lucy will. Vetsfra. It's okay. It's a yeah. confusing name yeah. for English speakers. <laughs> um, Empress Elizabeth um, and Countess Lariche. They, um, in the story that we're telling, they heavily influence the way he is or what happens later on in the ballet. Mm. And also I forgot there's um, a character called Mitzi, um, who's very um, important to the story as well. Mm. So we've got in there his um, his mother, his uh, his wife, and then some mistresses as well. A, f- a few of them are there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Countess Larish, who was a mistress, but kind of organizes his future encounters with other mistresses, but with mm. Mary, which is um, great because that helps me a lot doing the duets with them because it gives my character a background and why he is, especially with um, Empress Elizabeth. It's mm. very tender duet where she's very, she doesn't just want to, she does want to speak to him basically. So it gives you that reason like, oh, that's probably why he might treat women the way he does. Uh, yeah. Because that, that distance. And then you see a part of her with Stephanie on their wedding night, which um, is quite brutal. Mm. Um, and that shows his more mental state and how he could treat women as well. Mm. Um, which I find absolutely interesting. Like it's, it's such a great yeah. story. You must be on stage the whole time. Basically, yeah, it's really demanding. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes right. you're just like, oh, I just want to go on the wings for like a glass of water or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's that's part of like that's why it's such a great role as well because it's so demanding. And I haven't actually performed it yet, but I imagine as soon as the curtain goes down, you're like, oh, okay, I've done. Yeah. Something so, and how long? Do you know how long that will be that you're on stage for? Um, I think the ballet is around two hours with an interval. So then it's, I guess, quite interesting. Well, then, if because of his mental state and his different relationships with the different uh, characters, that like you're saying, they're potentially all very quite sort of different dances that he does with them, depending on the character and his state of mind. Yeah. So it, 
the ballet starts off with um, his wedding to Princess Stephanie. And then Act One kind of introduces Countess Lariche and then shows that she's like an ex lover, but is like kind of introduces him to all the mistresses. And then shows a part of her with the mum. And then that kind of gives you the background of why he is the way he is. And then Stephanie, then he meets Mary and Mitzi. So yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. in two hours, you get a lot of story and there's a lot of fit in it. the way Kenneth um, McMillan choreographed it, it. It flows very well. So Lucy, could we get a bit of more background on um, some of those characters then? So you sort of already said a little bit about Princess Stephanie, um, his wife, and the fact that they didn't have a particularly good relationship. Is it a notably bad relationship or is it just that they aren't particularly lovers but yeah i mean i think it's similar for for a lot of royal uh relationships at this time that's all usually a marriage convenience you you have the odd relationship where it turns out happy right um but they um that they had an age gap i can't remember from the top of the head of my head how much but they were uh she was a teenager when they got engaged um and she actually hadn't started menstruating when they got engaged and so they had to delay the wedding this was hugely embarrassing for both sides um and so they they get married and they go to Luxembourg, which is just outside vienna for their um honeymoon and she doesn't explicitly say what happened but it's pretty clear when she says um what horror what torments that, that that happened on this night that he horribly treated her that the way it's shown in the ballet quite brutally Mm. um and it seems that you know at the beginning despite that the relationship is okay um and then they she gets pregnant and their relationship becomes closer you know hoping that there's gonna be an heir a, a male child um and then they have a daughter and everything starts to go downhill um he um gets diagnosed with gonorrhea i think in 1886 and infects his wife with this and so she she ends up never being able to have a child again um and you know there's a lot of differences again rudolph is very liberal stephanie is very conservative especially very religiously conservative um and he's of course taking all of these mistresses which was acceptable for a, a male member of the ruling house um and he's not very discreet about it and and stephanie in the end actually takes her own lover but she's very very discreet about it we only learn about it later um, from her letters to her sister. Um, yeah, so not a great marriage going on here. Um, and then you have Mitzi Kasper, um, who is, she, she's a prostitute and she is basically Rudolf's main mistress. He even buys a house for her. Um, and if he loved anyone, I would guess it's probably actually her. Um, he leaves her a huge amount of money in his will. Um, and he spent the last night before miling with her actually. Um, and he'd offered a suicide pact to her too. He wanted to to die with her at um, a monument uh, in Mödling, which is also just outside Vienna. And she said, well, at first she kind of brushed it off as a joke and then realized he was serious. And she went to the police, but they, you know, they said, we can't get involved in imperial affairs. So they just left it. Um, and she died um, quite young because of syphilis and she said nothing about miling she said nothing about her relationship with rudolph um so when she died people kind of ran into her house to try and find something but there Mm. there wasn't even a picture of them together so really she went to the grave with all of her secrets um and as um for countess larish she is uh, i'm not her biggest fan (laughs) if i have to be (laughs) honest of course i don't know her personally um 
but she was um, the daughter of uh, Empress Elizabeth's brother. And I think she had a bit of an inferiority complex going on because her mother was actually an actress who Franz Josef gave a title to make it acceptable that, you know, the Empress's brother had married an actress. Um, and she becomes the favorite of Empress Elizabeth. So she's always there with her. She becomes a confidant for her. And um, she actually has an affair with Mary Vetcherer's uncle, which is how this starts to come together. Um, and she basically orchestrates this entire affair between Mary and Rudolf. She writes a memoir where she kind of tries to clear her name. Um, she does a lot of falsification of the fact. She makes up letters, everything. It's, it's really crazy. Um, it's a fun read. It's all lies, but it's very amusing to read. Um, yeah, and she, she orchestrates this affair. Um, Mary sees Rudolf for the first time in April 1888 at um, horse racing. And she basically begs Marie Larish to, to, to give this letter to Rudolf. And Rudolf agrees to, to meet Mary and they meet for the first time in November 1888. Um, Marie Larish and Mary first go to a photography studio to take pictures together to give to Rudolf. And she's often the person they're kind of chaperoning, whether it's at the Hofburg that they're meeting or going on walks in the Prater. Um, Yes, and she, um, after Marie Larish, after Myling, basically gets expelled from the court when they find out the role that she had to play in the death of, of the crown prince and Mary Vetchera. Um, and her son actually commits suicide when he finds out about mm. all of this um, involvement of his mother as well. Um, as for Mary, she is my favorite. <laughs> mm. I actually have an original um, photograph of hers on my wall. Um, and she, um, I mean, she didn't live a long life. Of course, she died at the age of 17. Um, but her, her dad was basically a member of the new nobility. So not from these aristocratic circles, but still, you know, he, he was a baron. Um, he was a diplomat. So still, you know, of good standing. And her mother, Helena, was half Greek, half English and very, very, very rich. Um, so they come from Constantinople to Vienna. Uh, Constantinople is where Mary's dad was was acting as a diplomat. And, you know, she leads a very charmed life uh, of, uh, of a noble girl. Um, her education isn't amazingly good because they, of course, don't want young women at this time to be intellectuals. You know, we should learn how to, you know, have good conversations and play the piano and speak French and these kinds of things. Um, and Mary is someone who has very intense emotions. We can see it from her letters, we can see it from personality questionnaires that she filled out. Um, she has a very like keen sense of humor. I, I don't know why this makes me laugh, but she fills out a personality questionnaire where um, it asks her what she's terrified of. And she says going to the dentist. And I just found that so, <laughs> so, so sweet and charming. And she's, you know, the, the darling of Vienna's fashion scene. She's always on the front covers of the society newspapers for her fashion. And everyone is basically in love with her. And she is in love with life, in love with Rudolf and um, would do anything for him. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month, So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So it's because it's interesting because um, when I sort of first looked up Rudolph and um, Miling, and initially there's a sense that it's a doomed love affair just between Rudolph and um, Mary Vetsera, but it sort of almost seems like she's this kind of very late addition to the story. And she's so young as well. Like you said, she's sort of this sort of big pin-up finger in society, but she's only 17 when she dies. So sort of what... Yeah, is that is that normal? Because obviously he's not. Oh, I don't think so. I think um, she. I, I mean, I remember what it's like to be a teenage girl. I would never have died for you know a guy that I had a crush on, but I remember what it's like to have this really intense crush on someone and just be thinking about them all mm. the time. Um, so you know, on that side of things, I guess it's a little normal, you know, mm. for a teenage girl to have you know pictures of a guy on her wall. She would collect pictures of Rudolph actually. Um, but from Rudolph's side, I mean, firstly, there's the age difference, um, but also that I, I don't think he loved her. I think he probably did have feelings for her and that he was probably charmed by this, this young girl who showed such devotion to him. And we can see um, in a letter that he's saying stuff to her like, oh, let's, you know, go live in a hut in the woods and run away from the world and all of this kind of thing. Um, but when it comes down to it, I don't think it's that they died together because of some tragic love, um, you know, that could not be fulfilled because he was married and she was not of the right status. Um, from Mary's side, for sure, she says in her suicide notes that, you know, I can't marry for love and so I have to die with him. Um, whereas Rudolph, it seems to be more, he's he's been having these suicidal thoughts for a long time. He's been talking about suicide, about death to other people. And he's already offered suicide packs to other people. No one wants to go with him except this young girl who's so devoted to him. And I think he takes advantage of that and, and knows if he has her blood on his hands, then he has to go through with his own death. So to me, that's a lot more tragic than some kind of Romeo and Juliet star cross mm. lover story. Mm. It's actually, you know, this young girl being taken advantage of, really. It's like murder. Yeah, it's it's murder. Because mm. I'm realizing actually we've not actually said explicitly what happens at Myling. Obviously, we said that um, Rudolph commits suicide, but so what does actually happen? Mm -hmm. So um, they they travel to Myling. It, it's a little complicated in that Mary goes along first, and driven by Josef Pratfish, who is Crown Prince Rudolph's like, main carriage driver. Um, and they drive to an inn outside of Vienna called Rote Stadel, and they wait for Rudolf. Rudolf comes, um, and, and they go together in, in this carriage. And just before they get to Myling, he gets out and he goes by foot. So it doesn't look like he's coming with Mary. And he has basically organized a hunt there with two of his friends. Um, and they arrive, they have no idea that Mary's there. And to cut, cut a long story short, um, he was, Rudolph was meant to join the hunt, but he says that he has a cold, so he can't. They have dinner together, and then he retires to, to be with Mary on the night of the 29th of January. And we can see now that it, it, it definitely was that Rudolph killed her and then killed himself because, um, 
Mary's body actually got stolen in the 1990s by a guy who was really obsessed with miling and wanted to find out what happened. So he pretended that Mary's skeleton was actually his great great aunt or something like this. And we can see that that um, the bullet wound is, is on the left hand side of the skull and Mary was right handed. So it would be a bit, you know, awkward for her to, to you know, be shooting herself. Um, and with Rudolph, um, it, it can't have been murder. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that say that it was murder. For example, Empress Zita was saying that it was murder um, on, on the part of the French, or there's crazy conspiracy theories that it was a party that had gone wrong. Um, but we have his suicide notes as well. Um, and Emperor Franz Josef was recorded by um, his daughter, Marie Valerie, as being completely bewildered that people thought that this was murder. So there's just a lot of pieces of evidence that come together that prove that he killed Mary and then killed himself. What well, what's the relation then between this chap and the guy who got shot, um, Franz Ferdinand? Ah, uh, they were, oh, I'm so bad at these Habsburg family <laughs> tree. I think they were, were, were cousins, in, in some distant cousins. And he actually, despite my bad visualization of a family tree in my head, um, Crown Prince Rudolf actually said one time, he's going to be emperor. Um, you know, kind of foreshadowing that Rudolf wasn't going to live to be emperor, but it would actually be. Oh, so Franz Ferdinand was was next in line after his because of this. Yeah, since Rudolf didn't have um, a child, a, a male child, uh, he had a daughter, but he didn't have a male yeah. child, so that made Franz Ferdinand the next in line. Wow, God, that must what a. Yeah. scandal i can't believe i haven't heard of it. i know also for, it's also uh, loads of tragedies happen like of course france france joseph's brother gets shot by a firing squad in mexico and so the you know the line of succession just keeps getting oh yeah. you know obliterated where did i oh we were going to do a special on that weren't we graham there was like that that uh austrian like mid american empire or something was it uh, I don't know. You might be thinking of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might well be true. That might be. Our... <laughs> oh yeah, I've heard of this. Yeah, but it has, that's a huge impact on history because obviously the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Obviously, we go into the First World War and um, it all kind of falls apart. So, it's quite a big impact that his death has, presumably. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm more of a biographical kind of historian than anything political. Um, so part of me, from what I know, thinks that World War One probably still would have happened. I mean, for starters, Franz Josef was emperor. He, he was alive until 1916. So there's that. Maybe it would have been delayed in some way. You know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand's death wouldn't have been the trigger. But there are a lot of people who would be like, oh, what if Rudolf had lived and he was the emperor? Would we have had World War One? I don't think we'll ever know, but definitely his death, I think, had some role to play in accelerating these events. Going back to um, the uh, female characters in the well, in the ballet, in real life, um, it sort of sounds like actually he's kind of leaving a sort of trail of destruction around him that is quite a negative impact that he's having on all these people's lives. I'm just thinking in terms of how you're able to tell that story. Is it possible to be able to do that and those sort of women still kind of get their own voice? Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, in the ballet, it's very much from the perspective of Rudolf. Mm. But you see, you do see the effects around it. Like there's in Act Two, um, when he's really using drugs a lot and mentally not great, you can kind of see the, you can see the end coming. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
Countess Lariche in the version kind of is really worried about him, but then it caused friction between her and Empress Elizabeth. So that kind of ruins that relationship. Um, and then you see Mary, I would say it's, it's more obsessed with Rudolf. Hmm. Um, so you see that obsession take more over and that kind of, you can see like her decision to go with him convey more in, in the later hmm. story and, and Mitzi as well, um, because we have a, a brothel scene with um, workers and everything. And in that scene, you see how he treats her and you actually see him wanting to die with her and she says no. Hmm. And then you see the after effects of that. And I think you mentioned um, earlier that um, you work with intimacy coaches for um, some of those scenes, which is something which people maybe heard more recently with um, sort of films and TV productions that are increasing using intimacy coaches. Is this something you had before in Bali or is this kind of a new? Um, it's, I think it's relatively new. Um, I don't think it's really been done before. Um especially with themes that are in the ballet or just in the historical facts as well. Mm. It's, it's good because there are like in the brothel scene with brothel workers and it is very intimate. Um, and there's a lot of potatoes with that. I do with Mary that are quite um, sexual. Mm. So you are in a lot of poses and you do a lot of movements that could feel really uncomfortable if you're not, if you're not comfortable. Mm-hmm. So they're here to guide us through and make sure everyone feels safe, the people watching, the people dancing. Um, it, it, I think it's quite a new thing, but I think it's it should happen a lot more often. And it's also interesting to hear people like, oh, I'm feeling a bit sensitive today. Can we not do that particular movement or that part de deux mm. because I'm just not in the right mindset? Whereas before I think it's like, okay, we're going to rehearse this today. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. It was just been great working with R.C. Annie. We said about, you've um, said how he writes his will we've got his suicide note what's going on with mary at this point because you said about how she's sort of willing to die with him is but he actually shoots her so is she a willing participant in this or is this kind of another like abusive relationship where she ends up being killed like what's what's going on with yeah mary? i mean of course she's she's 17 years old so we, we can question how much you know agency she really has in this, but in in her suicide note, she uh, her farewell letters, um, she writes things like, um, "Don't don't cry for me. I'm going happily over." Um, and, and and you know, forgive me, mother, for what I've done. I couldn't resist love. All of these kinds of things. And and she said a couple of months before Myling to her piano teacher in a letter, um, that um, if she could give her life to make him happy, then she'd happily do it. Because what does life mean to me? she she says this um so it is you know there is this you know is it is it i mean it's not okay we know it's not okay um but she seems a willing participant in this maybe you know she she loved romantic novels and everything kind of big feelings so maybe to her this is her chance to be the heroine in in one of these books that she loved so much Uh, of course it's it's very tragic um that that she dies um but from the the letters that she was writing leading up to myling um and the the what she leaves in her farewell notes to her mother to her sister to her brother she also says that she'll watch over him from the other side we get the impression that she did want to die alongside rudolph but you know she also um is meant to be in the months leading up to myling according to people who knew her 
um, having these mood swings and also, you know, a bit obsessed with death and suicide. Um, yeah, so that, there's, wow. there's not much to say other than it's, it's mm. really heartbreaking when you think of Mary. And it's not just Rudolf, then, obviously, we've heard from some of the other characters. He's not the only one of these people who's got serious mental health issues, actually. It sounds Absolutely like a lot of them are actually not. quite troubled. Yeah, but his mother as well, um, she seemed quite, you know, also as a result of her circumstances being in this really restricted court where she felt very misunderstood and very far away from home. She also starts to become very depressed and, and anxious and, and introverted. Um, and her reaction also to Rudolf's death is very extreme. Uh, one of her daughters starts to be worried that she's going to commit suicide and, and all of these things. And, and her family, the Witzelsbachs, are kind of famous for having these, these, um, these people who have mental instability or, or mental health issues. For example, Ludwig II of Bavaria is kind of the famous example there. So, yeah. It all just falls apart for the Austro-Hungarians, doesn't it? Yeah. So. 200%. Um, so you said that she sort of goes into very, very serious grief. What, what other, other than that, what is the kind of the immediate reaction? Like, is it, is it known about, is it covered up? What happens when he dies? Oh, it's, it's covered up. (laughs) There's a whole, whole thing going on here. So they, the, the Imperial family didn't want people to know that there was a second body coming out of Myling. Um, so at first, that they also say that Rudolf dies, I can't remember which one comes first, either it's a heart attack and then a stroke, or it's a stroke and then a heart attack. This is what they're saying to, to the public, until they finally admit that he'd killed himself, but they never admit that Mary was there at all. Mm. And what happens with her is her um, her mother can't come to the grave. In fact, they, they tell, well, to, to pick up the body, they tell her mother to leave um, Austria to pretend she's going to Venice. And that Mary dies either on the way to Venice or or in Venice itself. That's going to be the official story. Um, And so her two uncles have to go to Myerling and pick up the body. And what they do is um, they put a broomstick down her clothes. So it looks like that she's actually alive. They put her in the carriage, sat between them. The broomstick is keeping her propped up. And so it doesn't look like a second body is leaving um, the hunting lodge. And um, they basically have to bury her in the middle of the night. Yeah, you look horrified. It's, yeah. it's, it's truly horrifying. Um, in the middle of the night, uh, there's a storm. So this doesn't really happen. And she gets hastily buried in the morning in what's called the suicide corner of Heiligenkreuz Abbey. And her mother isn't allowed to visit the grave until about two months later. Um, so it's a huge cover up. They don't want to know. They, they don't want people to know that she was there. And her family basically gets throughout history maligned you know that they're, they're treated as the villains in the story when mm. we can see from the historical proof that th- this is not the case god that's awful so how in the in the ballet then the protagonist is isn't actually as a i mean I've, clearly he's very ill but it's not terribly sympathetic it's a hard character to feel much sympathy for i guess yeah, um, that's actually really interesting to hear what Lucy was saying because I'm still like picking up things like, oh wow, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> could use that. Yeah. Got to process uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I think it mostly portrays him and his mental instability. So by the time they do commit suicide together, it seems more. It's like a. They both agree to do it, mm. and I guess he kind of feels sorry for both of them. Um, 
in in the ballet at the end. It's tragic, then, isn't it? Yeah, it's tragic. And then the, the they go behind a a piece of set, mm. and then you hear a gunshot, and then you see him come out. So she's obviously shot herself, or he's shot her, whatever. Mm. Um, mm. And then yeah, he has this moment of like two, like a minute or something on stage. And I think when I first watched, I was like, oh, I feel so sorry for this guy. He's gone through so much. Um, and I obviously didn't know much about the his- historical mm-hmm. facts. It's just the first time I saw the ballet. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then it's interesting because everything that Lisa said and you hear, you actually read about it and do your research. And like, I don't really know what to think of it. Yeah. You know? And I think that's kind of good as well mm. because you don't know what to think of it. And you're just like, oh, so people can come away from watching the ballet and have different ideas of how they felt or if they felt sorry for him or for Mary or for anyone or if they mm, both yes. deserve to do it. You know, so it's kind of like an open ending. It's real life, isn't it? It's less black and white. And when, you know, it's, it's not the fantasies that are often portrayed. Yeah. I mean, I feel sorry for everyone, if I'm honest, I, especially Mary, Mary the most. But really, whenever yeah. I'm reading all of these stories, I just think, what an absolute mess. And yeah. even with all of this privilege, right, of, of being a crown prince or being an mm. empress, they're still leading these these lives that are, you know, are, are broken in some way. Yeah. And it's interesting, with, like the fact that you said he goes to um, one of his other mistresses first and suggests... The suicide pact. So it was on the sense that actually he's at the end with Mary, but he 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 wants out, but he doesn't actually really want to be there with her. But he's kind of that's yeah, that's like she becomes his sloppy seconds in a way. <laughs> yeah, but that's a sort of another strange element of despair that it's like it's the wrong person that he's going to be dying with. And isn't there a bit? A bit there's a is there like in real life? Was there quite a gap between her death and his death? I think I read something that like there's yeah. Mm-hmm. So it looks like um, from from the medical reports that were taken at Myling that Mary had actually been dead for a couple of hours before Rudolph then turned the gun on himself. So you wonder what on earth was he doing in this bedroom while her dead body lay there? Was was he finishing his his farewell letters? I don't know. We'll never know. But that that adds another gruesome element to the story that he waited then so long to kill himself. It's also when you were describing what happens to Mary and her body afterwards, and it's it's awful and it's tragic, but like with the the broomstick and everything, it's also a weird element of farce to it as well. That's yeah. kind of like how a comedy show would present it, wouldn't you, with a dead body that's yeah. There's much better ways of doing that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, it also must have been absolutely traumatic for the uncles to have to go through with that. So, yeah. you know, there's not just Ma- Mary and Rudolph, the, the victims of Myling. There's so many people who get massively impacted by this and probably for, well, definitely for the rest of their lives. Uh, now, obviously, another key element of the ballet that we've not talked about, actually, is the uh, music. Yeah. Um, well, right now we're rehearsing with the pianist in the studio. I haven't actually heard... Um, the orchestra version yet mm. um but he's an incredible composer and that's just it's another element that adds to the ballet mm. um so it, it's good because it kind of lets the audience know how they should be feeling mm. i was like oh it's a very intimate moment so the music's very intimate so it kind of draws you in even more and also helps me as well 
add on that emotion. Whereas if it's very dramatic, you know, right at the end before he's about to, to die, it's very chaotic. So it's easy for me to get into that mindset as well. Mm. Yeah, no, mm. um, Francis is, yeah, stunning music. Is it quite strange in terms of, because um, you're saying how, you know, the, the costumes, um, sort of, you're seeing the designs, but not quite there yet, and the full orchestra hasn't been yet. So you've not actually kind of had a kind of full dress rehearsal, I guess you say, with no. sort of all the places in place. So I guess there's still an element where it's going to kind of come together. It's not quite had the yeah. full experience yet. So we usually do that in production week. So like uh, a week or about 10 days before we have opening night, we'll go into the theatre and that's where you kind of see everything coming together, like the sets, the costumes, um, the orchestra, the lighting, um, which is really exciting. It can be quite overwhelming sometimes mm. um, because everything kind of comes together at once, but that's why we have a week or 10 days to get used to it and make sure it's all going smoothly. Mm. Yeah. So when's that all going to be happening? And then I guess the key question, obviously, is uh, when and where? We open in Glasgow on the 13th of April, um, and then... We're in Glasgow, then we go to Inverness, Aberdeen, and then Edinburgh. Cool. So um, we tour around Scotland, which is which is great. And it's also amazing because Kenneth McMillan is Scottish. Mm-hmm. And from my knowledge, this is the first time the ballet has been performed outside London. Oh, wow. So um, it's that's also very special, but it's mm. also special that he was a Scottish choreographer and Scottish ballet, the National Ballet Company is doing it. Yeah, and going around Scotland as well. So yeah, it's it's a lot, a lot of great things happening all at once. <laughs> and how long is it running for? We open in April and then it closes in May. So um, it's yeah, it's quite it's quite a lengthy tour. And are there any sort of key links or social media accounts or things that people should be following to get more information on the show? Yeah, you can follow Scottish Ballet on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, all of the above. Um, they'll be giving out information about dates as well. You can go on to uh, the Scottish Ballet website. Um, there's a lot of information. You can get tickets there and read more about the ballet and how our version is different and what we're trying to portray. So if you want more background information, you follow all the social medias. Um, you can follow some of the dancers as well. We post snippets of rehearsals. Oh, so nice. if you're more, more behind the scenes. If you go onto the dancers' profile on the Scottish Ballet website, um, it shows all the dancers in the company, oh, right. and you can um, find information about us. And... What about you, Lucy? How how can we follow you? Oh, <laughs> in a non-creepy way, I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I have Instagram that's also under my name, and and so is my Twitter. I have a website. I mean, if you just Google my name, it's it's going to come up. I think so. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and is there anything um, from either of you think that we've uh, missed or anything else that uh, you wanted to cover, either about the history, Luce, or the ballet, Evan? I don't think so. I mean, there's so many things about Myling that, that the podcast would end up taking about three hours. <laughs> um, you know, there, there's, there's stuff to do with the aftermath, with how the veterans are, are treated and stuff like this. But uh, for the sake of time, I think we yeah. have covered the most, uh, you know, the most vital things and also how this links to the ballet as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it was, um, yeah I think we covered ballet-wise and it's also great hearing what Lucy had to say as well. That was really yeah. useful. 
it's it's yeah. great to hear as well how things are going at, at Scottish Ballet because I mean I love this ballet um, also when I'm writing like an article on myling or something or doing some research I usually have the list music playing in the background oh, I no think way. yeah I think it captures the atmosphere perfectly and I think the the, the music fits perfectly to the choreography as well and like the moods and the characters it, it, yeah. it comes together so well cool is there a book on either Rudolph or smiling or anything if people are more interested yeah in there are a couple a lot of them are in german um uh, my problem is is that there's some in english but um some of the facts are a little not correct <laughs> i mean they're still fun reads so there's one called twilight of empire which on the whole is very very good um and self-promotion if i may i just actually in history today magazine wrote a short article um that you can read online um, that gives you, you know, an, an overview of the events. Um, but yeah, the, the most of the literature is actually in German. I think the story is not so well known in the English-speaking yeah. world. We need an English-speaking historian who can uh, write. Yeah, to I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm writing my biography of, of Mary at the moment, but it's going to take a couple of years still. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you both so much for joining us and uh, telling us all about Myling, Scandal Thereof and uh, Real History. Uh, good luck, Lucy, with the book. And uh, Evan, lots of luck uh, with the show. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And oh, break nice. all the legs. Toy, toy, toy. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Cheerio. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, so that was the historian Lucy Copeman and Evan Loudon from Scottish Ballet talking about the upcoming The Scandal at Myling and the uh, true story behind it. Uh, let us know if you enjoyed this episode. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the RexFactor Podcast Facebook page and email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use or donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get over 100 bonus episodes at www.patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Beth Jasper, Elizabeth Allington, Jay Bismeyer, Kate Miller, Jessica Letts, Amara Beach, Catherine Harrison, Stevie Florent, Maple Leaf Aussie, or Joe, Henry Fairbairn, Elizabeth Faulkner, Madeline Lowe, Sharon Cox, Steve Loeffler, Brew Colbrow, Lioness Feather, Beth, Peter, Dwayne Donovan, Andrew Davies, Leanne Elkham, Chloe Jardot Minard, Martin Bjorn Hansen, Vanessa Richards, and Natalie Crown. Arise, welcome, one and all. Some familiar names in there. Mm. Uh, and we've got a few messages to read out from long ago new Privily Councillors back in the Podbean days when a shout out, uh, when a message on the podcast was one of the rewards. I think you said privily. I probably just rather nice. <laughs> yeah, verily and privily, sir. <laughs> First up, E.G. Tyler. So excited to join the Privy Council. I've been listening since I believe it was episode five, as I've always wow. been a huge fan of history. Keep doing the good work and teaching us about people like Manny, whose references still make me laugh today. That's good shout, episode five. Yeah, it's a proper long-term listener. Mm. Uh, Amy Visser has an idea for how Ali can distract himself in the cellar. Or further distract himself, I should say. Do I think I need the opposite, don't I? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, I'm so excited to finally be part of the Privy Council. I joined as a Christmas present to myself, and I've been spending my holidays catching up on the special episodes while I work on some puzzles. Oh, it's lovely. My question for you both relates to my husband's Christmas present to himself. He bought a Lego set at the Coliseum, and that got me thinking about other hypothetical Lego architecture sets. I think building a Lego model of a historical castle would be a fun project, and I would most like to build either Edinburgh Castle or Neuschwanstein Castle in Germany. If you could build a Lego model of any castle, which castle would you choose? 
Well, that is probably one of the best questions we've ever been asked. Mm. Uh, I think actually the ones that I'd like to choose probably wouldn't be the most interesting in Lego. Oh, no, no, Carnarvon would be quite good because it's not a regular shape, especially if you could do the the, the city as well. Mm. If you could have a load of, of um, wooden, but made of Lego houses in there. Warwick would be good in Lego. Mm. Different shape towers and everything. All the all the reasons that I like the Edwardian ones are probably reasons why they wouldn't be so interesting in Lego. Yeah. <laughs> or uniform and... Uh, Luke Burroughs also had you in mind. The enjoyment of Ali's honest amazement at facts he has on record expressed honest amazement at before is clearly all I need. The thought of sharing this experience concurrently with the rest of the Rex pack tours, still workshopping that one, is a tremendous joy in a world that so rarely delivers gifts these days. Your voices have been a lifeline, so thank you, thank you, thank you for your efforts and your contagious goodwill. Oh, well, you're terrifically welcome. Uh, finally, short and sweet from Jess Dwyer. Thank you for years of entertainment. Looking forward to the additional episodes. Uh, so that's all from us uh, this week next time next week in fact so we're on a bit of a, a run with uh, episodes uh, for the next month uh, we'll be doing our first ever right of reply episode uh, so the idea behind this is that we'll deal with immediate comments or questions about the most recent consorts that we've done to the mini series as we call it um, so the Lancastrian queens will be our focus for this one so Joan of Navarre Catherine of Valois uh, and Margaret of Anjou um, if you've got any immediate questions you'd like us to address then uh, please do send them in but we'll be recording uh, that episode uh, on the Monday after this is released on a Friday. So if you've not done so already, not got very long, but nevertheless, anything over that weekend, <laughs> there's yeah. still time. Um, otherwise, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Cheerio.